Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Calling Tau City. Turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome. Hello and welcome to show 722. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. Hope everyone is fine and dandy. Just before we get into the main fiction there, big thank you to the narrator, Nobilis Reed, who, computer crashes and all sorts of headaches, managed to get the story on time for us. So, Nobilis, thank you so much indeed. It means a lot. Thank you. So I'll tell you what's coming today's show. It is the main fiction, Throwing a Haymaker by Rick Novi. Then we have our very own, our very own Amy H. Sturgis. We're looking back at genre history. That's all coming today's show. I do hope you'll stick around and enjoy it. So like I say, the main fiction, Throwing a Haymaker by Rick Novi. Rick is an engineer, writer and musician. In his free time, he enjoys working out, playing guitar and cooking healthy meals. Rick lives in Arizona, spending time in both Tucson and Scottsdale. Learn more at ricknovi.com. Now, this story is narrated by Noblis Reed, who is the host narrator of the podcast This Kaju Life, which is entirely safe for work, and the editor and creator of Noblis Erotica, which is not entirely safe for work. In addition, he occasionally narrates audiobooks, publishes novels, and pretends to have spare time. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present Throwing a Haymaker by Rick Novi, Narrated by Nobilis Reed The doorbell rang. Twice. Bart Toynbee watched his butler, Charles, pass through the kitchen on the way to the front door. A moment later, Charles returned. Uh, Dr. Harry Westmore is here to use the computer, sir. 
Good. Toynbee set the paper on the table and stood. I'll meet him myself. Very good, sir. Charles nodded his head before going about his business. Toynbee walked through the manor until he reached the foyer. There, a tall man dressed in black slacks and white shirt with a navy tie casually explored the art hanging on the walls. The man turned at the sound of Toynbee's steps on the polished wood floor. "'Good morning, Dr. Westmore,' Toynbee said while extending his hand. Westmore took the hand with an iron grip. "'Thank you for allowing me the use of the computer on such short notice.' "'Short notice.' Toynbee hadn't used the computer for at least three months, and all that time it just sat idle, taking up space and power. "'You were fortunate,' Toynbee said. "'Another client cancelled.' Westmore nodded with a slight glance toward the ceiling, as if thanking a higher power. "'I have several boxes of punch cards in my rambler. "'I'll have Charles bring them in.' Toynbee turned to walk down the corridor leading to the rear of his estate. The computer room was a recent addition, built over the old tennis court he no longer used due to bursitis. "'Follow me,' he said. "'Nice place you have here, Mr. Toynbee,' Westmore said. "'Thank you,' Toynbee smiled. Westmore seemed pleasant enough. What sort of research are you involved with? Uh, weather, he said. I'm working on some new weather techniques. Toynbee stopped in front of a door and removed a ring of keys from his pocket. My computer is here. I did tell you that it isn't cutting edge. Toynbee opened the door as Westmore answered. It's a 1952 model, right? Toynbee nodded as he flipped a switch and the fluorescent lights flickered to life. The firm bought a new computer when I was hired last year, and I took the opportunity to buy the old one. Not enough room for both. He suppressed a laugh. I thought it might be fun to play with, but I don't think very well in binary. I haven't touched it in eight months. Westmore followed Toynbee into the room, saying, It will take a little longer to process the information on this model, but I think it can handle the job. Toynbee patted a table near the punch card reader. Feel free to use the table for your punch cards. He took a couple of steps toward the door, then stopped to say, I would love to stay and learn about your project, but I have a meeting at the lodge. We're planning a food drive to help the Ethiopians. Sounds like a worthy cause. Westmore took a seat near the card reader. I'll send you a copy of my results. I look forward to it, Toynbee said. He turned to leave, sidestepping a moment to allow Charles to bring a box of punch cards through the door. For three solid weeks, Westmore spent almost every waking hour in Toynbee's computer room. At first, Toynbee spent time in the computer room discussing theories of weather, but toward the end of Westmore's stay, the scientist's mood became increasingly disagreeable. Westmore had paid for four weeks of computer time, but after the third week, he packed away his punch cards and left, claiming that he finished early. Toynbee was surprised. The man's mood did not radiate success, but he did pay for the entire four weeks. Toynbee's computer remained idle for several months, and thoughts of the man with a dozen boxes of punch cards left his mind. One Saturday afternoon, Toynbee pulled his red MG convertible into the garage and walked into the house. His wife, Rose, was watching television in the sitting room. "'How was your drive, dear?' she asked. "'Pleasant,' Toynbee said as he sat down on the sofa next to his wife. "'Remind me to have the oil changed on the MG. Is this beaver?' he asked, pointing to the television. His wife nodded. Yes, it just started. 
She turned her attention to the television, but then suddenly stood. Oh, there's a package for you. She disappeared into the next room and returned with a large clasp envelope. Dr. Westmore dropped it off just after you left. Toynbee opened the envelope and pulled out a large stack of journal articles. The one at the top bore the title, Computational Evidence to Support Weather Control. Beneath that was another article titled, Maser Stimulation of Atmospheric Conditions, and beneath that, Manipulating Weather Patterns in the Indian Ocean. On and on through the stack, the papers all related to weather control. Toynbee tucked the papers back into the envelope, got up from his sofa, and walked toward his study. "'Aren't you going to finish watching Beaver?' his wife asked. "'You can tell me what happens.' With that, he walked to his study and spent the next several hours reading the journal articles from Westmore. When he came out of his study, Toynbee was excited. "'This is fantastic,' he said to his wife while holding the envelope over his head. "'What is it, dear?' She was working on a cross-stitch and answered without looking up. Typical. Toynbee pressed on. The envelope contains a number of articles on weather control, written by our friend Dr. Westmore. His wife still didn't look up from the cross-stitch. That's nice, dear. Perhaps you can make it rain in Ethiopia. That way we won't have to do any more of those food drives. That's crazy, Toynbee said. Why, his wife said. We have the money, and we have the opportunity to do some good for the world. By making it rain? Westmore's procedure was all theory based on computer simulations. Nobody knew if it really would work, and it would require a very large sum of money. What if something goes wrong? he finally asked. If it doesn't work, what harm is done? she asked, leaning into the conversation. If there's a chance it might work, we should take it. All that money. Whether or not the project worked, there would be no return on investment. None at all. What's in it for us? Toynbee's wife smiled. Bart, we have more than enough money, and we can't take it with us. Let's do something good for the world while we are young enough to do some good. Why not? Man had achieved great things over the past fifty years. When Toynbee was a boy, nobody could conceive of quantum mechanics. Why, scientists had still believed in ether. Progress was progress, and only a fool would stand in the way. Here was an opportunity to make history and help people who truly needed help. Toynbee decided he was destined to do this. It was his calling. I suppose, he said to his wife, while still trying to sound hesitant, it was always a good idea to let her think things were her idea, that if a man can send a rocket into space, he continued, and transmit moving pictures over radio waves, why not control the weather? Harry Westmore was riding a wave of popularity spawned by his revolutionary solution to the weather problem. He had book deals, he had interviews, and he had appearances on late-night talk shows. When Toynbee arrived at Westmore's Los Angeles office, Westmore was nowhere to be found. The secretary said that Westmore was in Hollywood and would be back in a couple of hours. When he returned several hours later, the secretary announced that Westmore still wasn't in. When, Toynbee said in a dither, will Mr. Westmore be here? The secretary shuffled some papers and turned to her typewriter. The snub made Toynbee's blood boil. He slammed his palm down on her desk, causing a terrific rumble to reverberate through the small office. What kind of scientist refuses to see somebody who wants to grant funding? The secretary turned in a rather gruff manner, looking cross and shaking with anger. Mr. Toynbee, please leave at once or I shall call the police. I flew to Los Angeles to see Dr. Westmore. 
Dr. Westmore, the secretary corrected. Toynbee did not stop. Because I want to bring his theories to life. Does Dr. Westmore turn away everyone with the money to build a working prototype based on his theories? Toynbee did not wait for the secretary's answer. He spun about and headed through the door, which he slammed. Of all the nerve, turned away like a peddler. When he was almost at the end of the hall, he heard a voice from behind. Uh, Mr. Toynbee! It was the secretary. He stopped. He turned. He waited. Mr. Toynbee, Dr. Westmore will see you now. She flashed an artificial smile to punctuate her statement. Is that so? He just arrived, sir. She made a come-hither motion with her hand. He wants to speak with you. I see. I suppose he crawled in through the window. Mentioning the money never failed, not in business, not in academia. Toynbee walked back to Westmore's office. The secretary held the door for him and pointed to another door behind her desk. You'll find Dr. Westmore inside. Toynbee looked at the door, then at the secretary, then back at the door, and finally back at the secretary. Thank you, he said. The door was not locked. On the other side was a large laboratory filled with tables and benches, mostly empty. In the far corner was a fantastic array of computer equipment and electronic gadgets, all turned off as far as Toynbee could tell. His office is through that door at the far end, the secretary said from behind. Toynbee wasted no time in crossing the lab. He reached the door as the secretary pointed out and knocked. Westmore opened the door almost immediately, revealing an office space crowded with towering stacks of paper, manila folders, binders, journals, and computer printouts. Hello, Mr. Toynbee, Westmore said. A strange welcome for a man in whose house you stayed for three weeks. Westmore ushered him into the room and said, Quite so. I apologize for that. If I had known it was you, I would have seen you immediately. Toynbee followed Westmore through an obstacle course of paper towers and finally sat in one of the two green folding chairs at the front of the scientist's desk. Westmore continued around the desk and sat in his office chair. I know you're very busy, Toynbee said, so I'll get right to the point of my visit. He leaned toward Westmore to emphasize what he was about to say. I want to build a prototype weather-controlled maser. Westmore's face faded a few shades and took on the appearance of shock. Toynbee understood. It was a scientist's dream to have some eccentric, wealthy old buzzard spring for a multimillion-dollar project. Yes, Toynbee understood completely. Are you sure you want to do this? Westmore asked. The cost will be astronomical. Toynbee expected some diplomatic resistance from Westmore. It truly would be an astronomical cost, but Toynbee had astronomically deep pockets. He knew that once the shock wore off, Westmore would be gangbusters to help engineer his theory into technology. They always are. The cost is manageable, Toynbee finally said. What I need from you is a master list of materials and a procedure. I'll hire people to do the rest. Westmore began shuffling through a stack of papers and kept shuff, shuff, shuffling for over a minute. He had plenty to shuffle through with as many stacks as this office boasted. Some of the stacks were as tall as Westmore. Finally, he produced one file folder from the middle of a stack, setting it on the desk. I prepared this file a few months ago in the hopes that you might decide to follow up on my success. Westmore was starting to sweat, even though it was a bit cool in his office. Nerves, Toynbee decided. Westmore continued discussing the folder. It contains a list of all the components needed to build the Maser Array. 
Westmore paused, opened the folder, and pored over the contents for longer than Toynbee thought necessary, then pushed it across the table. The scientist patted the folder. I think you'll find that everything you need is in this folder. Number of masers, power injection, prime locations, optimal natural conditions, everything's here. He patted the folder again, pushing it another inch closer to Toynbee. Toynbee picked up the manila folder and rummaged through the contents to see what was inside. Westmore was right. It seemed that everything he needed was there. He looked up with a smile. Thank you, Dr. Westmore. This is exactly what I need. Construction of the Maser Tower project was ahead of schedule when Toynbee arrived in Ethiopia to inspect Tower Number 3 and to address the Ethiopian people. The progress had him in a good mood, especially after His Royal Majesty, Emperor Selassie himself, approved the project. His escort for the tour was a local woman named Umbe, or at least that was the best pronunciation Toynbee could manage. It was fair. The best Umbe could manage with his name was Tornby. Umbe was a tall woman, at least a head taller than most of the local men. She was also pregnant and starting to show, but not far enough along to cause the swelling to overcome the sag of her breasts. Toynbee noticed all of this with his first glance, but it didn't interest him. He turned his attention to the Mazer Tower. As you can see, Umbe said, the tower is nearly completed. She turned about and with a quick gait led him inside the chain-linked fence. Toynbee followed her to a cream-colored building a hundred meters inside the fence. This is the generator building, she said. Some of the hardware has not arrived yet, but we expect it to arrive next week. Toynbee took a moment to scan the site. The Mazer Tower looked every bit like a radio transmission tower, complete with flashing red light at the apex. Beneath the red light was a sheath with a protruding cylinder. He knew from Westmore's plans that the cylinder was an enclosure to protect the Mazer from the elements. He looked back at Umbe, only to see her unlocking the door on the cream building. Toynbee scrambled to catch up. Umbe smiled, probably at the sight of an old white man running. When he caught up, she invited him to lead the way with her free hand while holding the door open with the other. Toynbee stepped through the door into a large, empty room. The door slammed closed, leaving the room dark. That lasted only a few seconds before the overhead fluorescent lights flickered to life. Toynbee turned around in time to see Umbe remove her hand from the switch. "'This is where the generators will go,' she said while waving her arm to indicate the center of the large room. "'For now, let's visit the control room.' "'Yes,' Toynbee said. "'That's what I want to see the most.' "'It's in there,' she said pointing to a door about halfway down the wall on the left. The control equipment is on site, but the installation is incomplete. Fair enough, Toynbee said. They walked side by side to the door, but he paused to let Umbe open it. You may open the door if you wish. This is your facility. Toynbee waved her toward the door. I am a guest here. It is your facility, he said. Very well. Umbe opened the door and Toynbee followed her into a room. Half-filled equipment racks lined the walls with small tables between them. Mint-green office chairs, the same style as in Westmore's office, were situated at each table. On the corner table sat an analog computer, and filling the entire wall across from the door was a modern computer and card reader. This rack is our weather forecasting station. Umbe walked to another rack and said, And the mesa will be controlled from here. Toynbee inspected the setup and mentally compared it to the notes from Westmore. Umbe's voice broke his concentration. Mr. Toynbee, we must get back for the speech. The speech. Toynbee wished to address the people of Ethiopia directly. 
He wanted the people to know what he was doing and how he planned to break their drought. Breaking the drought would break the famine, and that would save lives. Let's go, he said. I want to be on time. The portable stage had been assembled outside the gate of the Mazer station. The stage was roped off from an area where a crowd was accumulating. On the stage were two lecterns equipped with microphones, one for Toynbee and one for his interpreter. Toynbee was kept busy meeting people and lost track of time. He was in deep discussion when the interpreter tapped his shoulder. Time for your speech, Mr. Toynbee. The crowd was enormous. He'd given speeches in corporate settings in the past, but never anything of this size. He rationalized that everyone had a vested interest in what he had to say. Their very lives might depend on it. Toynbee and the interpreter both climbed the stairs to the stage. As they walked across the stage to the lecterns, the crowd erupted with a deafening cheer. Toynbee was forced to wait nearly two minutes before the noise settled down enough to allow him to speak. His ten-minute speech lasted over an hour because the crowd continued to interrupt with cheers. They cheered when they told him that Major Station would bring jobs and be operational by January of 1960. But they cheered for fifteen solid minutes when Toynbee told the crowd that the Mazer Station would help bring rain whenever Ethiopia needed rain. When his speech finally concluded, the crowd broke into a chant, Torn B! Torn B! As for Bart Toynbee, he was on top of the world. How else could one feel when saving an entire nation from starvation? After his visit to Ethiopia, Toynbee ordered the Mazer Station grounds expanded for the installation of a heliport and on-site lodging. The size of this cheering crowd made him feel like a king, but he could foresee that becoming a problem in the future. A large crowd could impair the operation of the Mazer Station if Toynbee should ever decide to visit during a mission. Keeping a heliport on the site would allow the easiest ingress and egress without attracting a crowd. Ethiopian Station Number 3 was only one of a series of Mazer Stations built in strategic locations around the world, and when the full array was finally finished and ready for the inaugural mission, Toynbee decided he wanted to be in Ethiopia for that mission. He arrived by helicopter, landing at the new helipad. A small crowd was gathered outside the fence near the helipad, probably attracted by the sound of the rotors. Toynbee walked from the helipad to the control building through the din of the cheering crowd. He waved to acknowledge them, and the din only got louder. Inside the control building, the noise from the now-functional generator array drowned out the crowd. Toynbee smiled at the sound that would bring salvation to these people in the form of rain. Life offered few pleasures that could compare with the satisfaction of helping people. The control room was crowded with the equipment operators and observers. As the architect of the project, space had been reserved for Toynbee. Space had also been reserved for Westmore, but he declined the invitation, claiming illness. No matter... Toynbee always gave credit where credit was due. Toynbee had approved space for only one reporter inside the control room, and that reporter was Gretchen Bierbaum of The Journal. She was a beat reporter who had been following Toynbee most of her 20-year career. She was already in the control room when Toynbee arrived. "'Good day, Gretchen,' Toynbee said. "'I'm glad you could make it.' Gretchen sported a grin as wide as any Toynbee had ever seen. "'I wouldn't miss this, Mr. Toynbee,' she said. To have a chance at witnessing history like this? This is the finest thing a human has ever done. Gushing, she was simply gushing. It was too much for Toynbee to bear. Well, make yourself comfortable, he said. I must greet everyone here. With that, he excused himself to mingle with the other guests. The technicians and engineers he left alone. They did not need distractions right now. Toynbee was busy speaking with the local mayor when the PA system crackled to life. Three minutes to Mazer Fire. The voice was that of Umbe. 
He heard rumors that she lost the baby, and he meant to visit with her before leaving the country. She must have come back to work to keep her mind off the child. He forced that train of thought out of his mind. There would be time enough to console Umbe once the mission was finished. He decided to stand next to Gretchen for the firing. After edging through the crowded control room, he managed to find a spot to stand near the reporter. "'You enjoying yourself?' he asked. "'Doesn't seem to be much happening,' Gretchen said. Toynbee chuckled. "'No, even when the maser fires, you won't see much. The wavelength is well below the visual.' "'It's a microwave laser, I know that,' Gretchen said. "'I just don't know how this is going to bring rain to Ethiopia.' "'The maser will kick the natural rhythm of the Indian Ocean into a different leg of its cycle.' Toynbee held his hand to represent the Indian Ocean and gestured with the finger of his other hand. "'The maser will generate winds that will stimulate cooler water temperatures in the eastern side of the ocean. That will push warm water toward Africa, and warm water produces storms.' Gretchen seemed to be chewing on that idea because she hesitated before she responded. "'And that's natural?' she finally asked. It is part of the natural cycle. Toynbee was particularly proud of this, because that much was true. All I'm doing is giving nature a little push, moving her to a different part of the cycle, like I said. Gretchen's answer was preempted by the PA system. Umbe started the countdown from twenty. How long will it fire? Gretchen asked. I'm not sure. Every maser in the world fires on a coordinated schedule, and the individual patterns are all different. Toynbee hoped that Gretchen understood... He didn't want to explain everything and miss the moment. This weather change requires global stimulus. Toynbee turned his attention back to Umbe's voice. Ten, nine, eight. Here it comes, Gretchen, Toynbee said. He was aching with excitement. All the lead-up and the time had finally arrived. This is the moment we change the world. Three, two, one, now. The lights momentarily dimmed until the generators could compensate for the power drain. The maser fired for three full minutes before the operator shut it down. Maser firing is completed, Umbe announced. Let's hear it for Mr. Toynbee! The small crowd in the control room cheered, and Toynbee's face flushed. Speech! they yelled, and finally he gave in, taking the microphone from Umbe. Thanks to all of you for making this project possible. If Mr. Westmore's model is true, we should see rain by the end of the week. That's all Toynbee said. He was tired and wanted to get some rest. It was early the next morning when a motorcycle approached the Mazer complex. Toynbee was already eating his continental breakfast as a guard led the messenger to him. This man claims to have a message for you, Mr. Toynbee. The messenger was a white man about forty years of age. He wore blue jeans, a white t-shirt, and black leather jacket. He looked the part of an aging street racer, and the man nodded in approval with the mention of the message. Leave us, Toynbee said to the guard. Have a seat. The messenger sat across from Toynbee, then introduced myself. Mr. Toynbee, my name is Jesse Rodham, and I was asked to deliver this envelope to you. He handed Toynbee a tattered 9 by 11 envelope filled with what felt like papers. He continued. Apparently, three scientists have tried to verify Westmore's results, and no one has been able to reproduce them. Toynbee looked out the window at the Mazer Tower, then at the partly cloudy sky, but said nothing. He tore open the envelope and removed the contents. Article after article, both scholarly and newsstand, calling Westmore a fraud. At the bottom of the stack was a copy of a letter from Westmore. In it, he admitted that he falsified his results due to university publication pressure. Toynbee sat there, not knowing what to do. The messenger Rodham said, Are you all right, Mr. Toynbee? 
Toynbee had a faraway look in his eyes, a look of utter shock and despair. Dear God, he said, what have I done? Toynbee looked again at the articles. It was some time before Toynbee realized that Rodham was speaking to him. Sorry, what did you say? I said that most of the mazers did not fire. We had to send messengers to the remote stations like this one and the station in India. Rodham waited as if for some kind of congratulations from Toynbee. He would get none. This Mazer fired last night, Toynbee said. It was six days after the Mazer fired that the rains came. The rain was gentle at first, just a pitter-patter against the walls of the dormitory. Toynbee was in the common room, watching the rain through the windows. Why are you feeling bad, Mr. Toynbee? He broke his stare from the window and looked at Umbe. You brought rain, just like you promised. He smiled, if only for a moment. Yes, I brought rain. But what else have I done? We need the rain, Mr. Turnby. Rodham brought a telegram this morning. The weather has changed everywhere, not just here. Toynbee turned his attention back to the thumping of the rain against the windows. Nobody knows how bad this will get. He didn't think that Umbe could understand. The Ethiopians only knew that it was raining. Rain meant crops, and crops meant food. He had kept his promise of rain to Ethiopia. The crowd gathered around the station, said that was something. Late in the evening of the third day of rain, the storm intensified. The wind howled as the rain came down in sheets. In the darkness outside the window of his room, all he could see were the fat raindrops pelting the glass. He watched for hours, wondering how long the rain would last, what was happening elsewhere in the world, and when the weather would return to normal, if it would ever return to normal. He was yanked from his thoughts by the pounding of the door of his room, the hard, heavy pounding of large fist against the door. Who could that be? He opened the door to see Umbe and a very large and very black man. His left arm was around Umbe, and the other was raised as if to strike the door again. Ah, Mr. Turnby, Umbe said. The helicopter, sir. What about the helicopter? The wind has flipped it over, she said. Well, it can't fly in these conditions anyway, Toynbee said. I'll take a car to Djibouti when the rains stop. Umbe shook her head frantically. Many roads are washed away, she said. Her husband's face displayed the faraway look of somebody excluded from a conversation in a language not understood. Toynbee was in no hurry to face the media. Then I'll stay here. We'll have the helicopter repaired when the rains stop. He said it, but he was not certain the rains would ever stop. After nine days of non-stop heavy rain, Toynbee sat in the common room of the dormitory. The hour was late. Through the window he could see the shadows of a crowd gathered outside the gates, illuminated only by the lights of the Mazer compound. There was no cheering this time. Men hurled themselves at the chain-link fence, and the fence bulged inward in several locations. Rain whipped past the men, but it did not slow their determination. They continued to hurl themselves, and the bulges grew. He heard Umbe walk up from behind, then felt a hand on his shoulder. You should have left with the reporter before the rains. Toynbee shook his head. But I didn't, and I'm sure she's writing some incredible stories. She tugged on his arm. You should move someplace safer, Mr. Turnby. There's nowhere safe. He stared at the men. The fence was almost breached now. Why are they so angry? You don't know? Toynbee shook his head. He looked up at Umbe. Pain was in her expression. Tell me, he said. Eighty-three people are dead from the flood. 
and still the rains come. I... She turned and walked away. Westmore. This was his fault. A scientist was supposed to be somebody you could trust. They were people dedicated to the search for truth and knowledge, not fabricating results for the sake of a publishing credit. Toynbee felt betrayed, violated, and less in control than any time in his life. He called after Umbe. Your people! I wanted to save them! He choked back the tears and looked out the window. The fence was down. The crowd ran toward the dormitory. Some slipped, others fell in the mud, but that did not stop the crowd. He could hear their shouting through the glass of the windows and could see their angry faces in the light of the incandescent bulbs. Toynbee did not run. Upon reaching the concrete, the crowd ran through the entrance of the dormitory. Toynbee turned to Umbe. Go. Get away now. She hesitated, but Toynbee pushed her and she ran deeper into the building. The crash of shattering glass resonated through the dormitory. With nothing to stop it, the cold, damp wind howled through the building. The rumble of footsteps climbed the stairs to the second floor. Still, Toynbee did not run. He knew there was nowhere to go. The door crashed open, but Toynbee refused to look. Instead, he continued to stare out the windows at the damaged chain-link fence. The angry footsteps slowed, overtaken by chatter amongst the people in the mob. He understood nothing. The chatter was all in the local tongue. Toynbee never bothered to learn the name of the language. He was too busy saving Ethiopia to bother learning anything about it. A single set of footsteps approached from behind, stopping a good ten feet away. Toynbee wondered how much it would cost to repair the damaged fence. From behind came a man's voice. Mr. Toynbee. It wasn't just Umbe with that strange accent. He stood up from his chair, and upon turning toward the crowd, he could do nothing but stare. The man who approached stood well over six feet tall. His was an imposing figure. The man did not smile. He just stared at Toynbee. Well, Toynbee said, finish the job. Stormy weather is perfect for a beating. The darkest man snapped his fingers before he pointed at two men carrying rusted carbines. Take him, the darkest man said, and the two stepped forward to grab Toynbee by either arm. The crowd parted as the darkest man stepped through the door. Toynbee went through the door, too. He was forced. The mob led Toynbee down the stairs and out into the rain. They led him to the Mazer Tower. At the tower, he saw several pack animals gathered, oxen or maybe water buffaloes. He couldn't tell. Toynbee felt detached, as if he were watching everything from far away. How alien these people were. He had tried to save them, but never to understand them. Why did they not kill him? He understood why the villagers blamed him, hated him, but it still felt wrong. All that cheering was a lifetime ago. Hail the conquering hero, the white knight, arrived to rescue the damsel in distress. What other reception should the knight expect after releasing the dragon? A crack of thunder brought Toynbee back to the here and now. In the momentary brightness from the flash of lightning that followed, Toynbee saw a yoke tied to the beasts that might be water buffaloes. Tied to the yoke was a cable. The other end looped around one leg of the Mazer Tower. The crowd was about to topple the tower, and they brought him here to watch. Insult to injury, except Toynbee no longer cared. The money was wasted from the day Westmore handed him that manila folder with his falsified designs and fabricated Mazer simulation data. Harry Westmore following in the footsteps of other great liars. Weather Control was the new Piltdown man. Only this time it wasn't a harmless prank. This time, people paid for the charlatan's ruse with their lives. How many people did Umbe say? Something in the 80s? And it was still raining. 
The darkest man got right in Toynbee's face, staring him in the eye with noses almost touching. "'Watch now, Mr. Toynbee,' he said, accompanied by a mist of spittle. "'Your tower is about to fall.' The men holding Toynbee pulled his arms backwards into an extremely uncomfortable position. Toynbee grimaced for a moment, then said, "'I wanted to help, to make—' "'We do not want your kind of help. Watch now as the welder makes his cut.' The darkest man turned to face the tower himself. He clapped his hands over his head twice, and a few moments later the blue flame of an acetylene torch lit the base of the tower. In another moment, sparks flew as the welder began cutting a metal support post. The welder continued for several minutes, then suddenly the blue flame disappeared, and all Toynbee could see was the hot glow of the freshly cut metal. The darkest one raised his hand again, then said, "'Pull!' Before the echo from the darkest man faded away, a whip cracked and the water-buffalo creatures heaved in unison, causing the support post to buckle." Once the post buckled, the tower fell to the ground, crushing the water-buffalo beasts and the man with the whip. It fell too fast to avoid, and they were trapped beneath the steel crossbeams. When the tower fell to the ground, the crowd in front gasped in horror while watching the death of the man. Further back, the crowd cheered the felling of the tower. Toynbee watched dispassionately, caring neither for the tower nor the man crushed beneath it. The men at the front of the crowd rushed to the fallen man. They tried desperately to lift the tower, but the weight was far too great. They gestured for the welder to cut him free, but Toynbee doubted it mattered. Nobody could survive those crushing pounds. Toynbee was not allowed the chance to find out. The crowd drifted closer, forming a semicircle around him. The guards, who still held Toynbee's arms, shouted at the crowd in their strange language. Some of the men in the crowd shouted back and pressed the semicircle inward, backing Toynbee and the guards against a tree. Guards and crowd exchanged more shouts, and the darkest man appeared from behind the tree. He joined the shouting match, forcing the crowd back with his will, but it didn't last long. After another exchange, the guards released Toynbee and fled with the darkest man, leaving Toynbee to face the crowd alone. Everything was a failure. The desire to help these people was about to lead to his bludgeoning. Why couldn't they see the problem wasn't him? The problem was Westmore and his lies! One man near the front of the crowd stepped forward and pushed Toynbee into the tree trunk. The blow slammed his shoulder at an awkward angle, and a sharp pain shot through his back. Another shove, and pain shot again. Toynbee preferred a bat to the head. At least that would kill him quickly. Repeated punches and kicks connected, until his entire body felt numb. A vicious blow knocked Toynbee to the ground. His body screamed from the searing heat of his damaged shoulder. Mercifully, a hard blow to the head made the world go black. Toynbee's body hurt everywhere. Light made opening his eyes hurt, but that was the least painful part of his body. As he stirred, he heard a voice and pressed his groggy mind to identify it. Female, familiar. Is that you, Rose? The effort of speaking that short phrase exhausted him. The woman managed to force out one word. Yes. He rested a moment before trying to speak again. When he felt his energy return, he said, Where am I? Djibouti, his wife said. A woman named Umbe convinced the crowd to stop the beatings after you collapsed. She brought you here after the local doctor refused treatment. Amazing. Umbe had no reason to risk herself to save him. She must have seen his horror when the rains continued unabated. Was it still raining? How long had he lain in this hospital bed? The rain? Rose rested her hand on Toynbee's before she answered. 
Just a drizzle for the past two days. The National Weather Service back home says that everything is returning to normal. A relief. It was finally ending, but at what cost? And what of Harry Westmore? What happened to him? Toynbee thought he said it out loud, but Rose did not speak. He tried again. What happened to Harry Westmore? Rose wrinkled her brow, but did not answer immediately. After years of marriage, Toynbee knew that meant he wouldn't like her answer. He waited patiently. Rose gently patted his hand as he waited for her response. She was a good woman. Marrying her was his most successful venture. After an eternity, she finally answered, Nothing. Nothing happened to him. She put a finger across Toynbee's lips. Save your strength, dear. Toynbee couldn't help himself. Nothing? Oh, he's now shunned by the scientific community, but he retired before he could be fired. Rose waited a moment, then she added, He made enough money with his books and lectures to allow retirement. Retirement? How many people were dead in Ethiopia? Even though it was now just a drizzle, the rain still hadn't let up. How long had he been in the hospital bed? How many more people died since the tower fell? What about the rest of the world? Surely more people died in places other than Ethiopia. How many dead? he asked. His wife again announced bad news with her silence. Worldwide, 14,000, she finally said. Mostly in third world countries. How could Westmore get away with this? And nothing happened to him? Rose, Rose fixed a stray lock of hair in Toynbee's forehead. He did nothing illegal, she said. Despite the pain, Toynbee pushed himself to a sitting position. He adjusted the pillow behind his back, then rested against it. What a travesty, he said. It's Piltdown Man all over again, only this time Westmore led innocent people to the slaughter. He turned his head and drank in the sight of his wife. He was glad she came to Djibouti, but his mind couldn't stay away from Westmore. Such a price for cardboard fame, Toynbee said. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
There you go. Huge thank you to Rick. Rick Novi, thank you so much indeed. And Noblis. What can I say there? Big hug, lad. Big hug. Next up is our very own Amy H. Sturgis. We're looking back at genre history. Ames! Hello, my friends. It's time for another look back on genre history. And today I would like to start in the 20th century and then by the end move forward into 2023. I'd like to talk today about Manly Wade Wellman, an author who was born in Portuguese West Africa in 1903, moved to the U.S. at the age of six, and eventually became a longtime resident of North Carolina, a state which remembers him and honors him to this day, as I will mention later. He lived from 1903 to 1986. He was a prolific author of many genres. His science fiction and fantasy stories appeared in pulps like Astounding Stories, Startling Stories, Unknown, and Strange Stories, and especially his home publication, if you will, Weird Tales. He wrote Lovecraftian stories. He wrote stories of occult detectives. He also wrote westerns and detective and crime novels. And he won multiple awards over his career, including the Edgar Allan Poe Award, frequently called just the Edgar, from the Mystery Writers of America. But he also wrote straight-up science fiction. I could mention many works here, but of particular note, I want to point out two. One is the novel Twice in Time, first published in May 1940 in Startling Stories. That's an effective time travel story, and it features the setting of Leonardo da Vinci's Florence. Good stuff. And he also wrote, and this was in fact my first introduction to him, with his son, Sherlock Holmes's War of the Worlds, which was a collection of linked stories that came out in 1975. Recently, it was reprinted in Titan Books' marvelous The Further Adventures of Sherlock Holmes series. And in that series, it was titled The War of the Worlds. That came out in 2009. And like I said, those stories were co-written with his son, Wade Wellman. These stories are intricate mashups or pastiches of the most thoughtful kind, involving the detective Sherlock Holmes, Dr. Watson, and Professor Challenger, all creations of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, in The Martian Invasion, described in H.G. Wells's novel The War of the Worlds. So, I found this combination to be a case of great tastes that taste great together. Here is a description uh, the official blurb from the Titan Books edition in 2009. Again, that is titled The War of the Worlds. Quote, H.G. Wells meets Sherlock Holmes in this thrilling historical mystery in which the famous detective seeks the culprit behind an alien invasion. Sherlock Holmes, Professor Challenger, and Dr. Watson meet their match when the streets of London are left decimated by a prolonged alien attack. Who could be responsible for such destruction? Sherlock Holmes is about to find out. Manley and Wade Wellman's novel takes H.G. Wells' classic story of Martian invasion 
and throws Holmes into the mix with surprising and unexpected results, end quote. So that's the War of the Worlds. But wait, there's more to the Manly Wade Wellman story. He is best known for his fantasy and horror stories set in the Appalachian Mountains, in the highlands of which I am right now, as a matter of fact. These stories draw on the traditional tales of the region. They draw on Appalachian folklore. And his most famous recurring protagonist in these stories is John, also known as Silver John, also known as John the Balladeer, who is a wandering backwoods troubadour with the silver-stringed guitar. Now here I'd like to quote just a section from the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction. Wellman's entry is written by John Clute and David Langford, and there is a section here about John the Balladeer I'd like to share. Quote, After 1951, adjusting his focus to the needs of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, which had taken over from Weird Tales as his main journal, Wellman devoted much of his energy to his most famous sequence, the stories and novels set in the Appalachian Mountains of North Carolina that follow the life and adventures of the minstrel known as Silver John, a publisher's tag he did not like, or John the Balladeer, whose encounters with creatures out of folklore and pulp seem half unpremeditated, though he survives through his army training and his charisma. Wellman based him in part on Johnny Cash, who lived from 1932 to 2003, and in part on John the Baptist. The series comprises Who Fears the Devil, a collection of linked stories 1963, the title story of which was filmed as Who Fears the Devil in 1972, and the Old Gods Waken, 1979, After Dark, 1980, The Lost and the Lurking, 1981, The Hanging Stones, 1982, and The Voice of the Mountain, 1985. Along with other work, some late John stories were assembled in The Valley So Low, Southern Mountain Tales, collected in 1987. Cumulatively impressive, the series remains his most significant achievement. In 1980, he received the World Fantasy Award for Lifetime Achievement. End quote. Okay, so I'm not a North Carolinian, but I did live in North Carolina for over a decade. I have dear friends who live in North Carolina now, and over the years, I've attended some wonderful science fiction conventions held in North Carolina. And it was while I was living in North Carolina, in fact, it was while I was at a science fiction convention in North Carolina, that I learned of the Manly Wade Wellman Award. This award was founded in 2013 to recognize outstanding achievement in science fiction and fantasy novels written by North Carolina authors. This award is made with the permission of Wellman's estate, and I think it's a really positive way to mark his contributions to science fiction and fantasy and to North Carolina literature. So the 2023 award covers novels published in 2022 and marks the 10th 
presentation of the award. So, who won this year's award? I can hear you asking. Well, let me share from the official announcement of the winner of the 2023 Manly Wade Wellman Award. From Winston-Salem, North Carolina, Friday, July 14, 2023, I quote, The North Carolina Speculative Fiction Foundation is proud to announce the winner of the 2023 Manly Wade Wellman Award for North Carolina Science Fiction and Fantasy, the result of juried selection from the list of 10 finalists. The award was presented at Congregate 9, on Friday, July 14, 2023, in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, to Pittsburgh author Ursula Vernon, writing as T. Kingfisher for the novel Nettle and Bone, published by Tor Books. Kingfisher's novel, also nominated for the Hugo Award, the Nebula Award, the Locus Award for Best Fantasy Novel, and a Goodreads Choice Award, is, quote, an original and subversive fantasy adventure, end quote, that's a quote from Tor Books, where Mara, the third daughter of a small and imperiled kingdom, must rescue her older sister from the clutches of a powerful and abusive prince. After the untimely and mysterious death of their oldest sister, after being wed to him in a political alliance, to do so, she must complete three impossible quests, starting, as the novel does, by building a dog of bones and sewing a cloak of nettles. But it's only after her quests are completed that the real mission can begin." So T. Kingfisher wins this award and gives an acceptance speech talking about reading Manly Wade Wellman's stories, and there's a wonderful historical tidbit in there. So I'm going to share just part of T. Kingfisher's acceptance speech here. Quote, It's a great honor as a North Carolina writer to receive the Manly Wade Wellman Award for my book, As it happens, I was reading one of the Silver John books the other day and fell down an internet rabbit hole, which I'm now going to inflict on you. Silver John frequently references a book that he learned many of his various spells and incantations from, called The Long Lost Friend. I had assumed this was as fictional as the Necronomicon, but as it turns out, it really existed. It was a Pennsylvania Dutch grimoire, published in the early 19th century by a folk healer named John George Homan. The Long Lost Friend, you can find it online, and I hope it makes your day just slightly weirder like it did mine. End quote. How cool is that? A lovely tidbit there from T. Kingfisher about the world building of Manly Wade Wellman and the origin of that book, The Long Lost Friend. FYI, Kingfisher joins a really impressive list of authors who have won in the last decade the Manly Wade Wellman Award. These include Mer Lafferty, twice, John G. Hartness, A.J. Hartley, Gail Z. Martin, Christopher Ruocchio, Michael G. Williams, Natanya Barron, and Monica Byrne. All recipients of the Manly Wade Wellman Award and now T. Kingfisher. 
Now, let me wrap this up by sharing some cool news. If you're looking for presents for that genre-loving reader in your life, or for yourself, you should know that just this autumn in 2023, Valancourt Books, a press dear to my heart, which continually brings back lost works or works that are out of print to a new generation of readers, has released John the Balladeer, a collection by Manley Wade Wellman, edited with an introduction by Carl Edward Wagner, with a foreword by David Drake. And here is the official description of this collection. Quote, In John the Balladeer, Manley Wade Wellman created one of the great characters in all of horror and fantasy literature. Armed with his silver-stringed guitar and an endless trove of folk songs, John travels the backwoods of Appalachia, battling supernatural evil with his own brand of down-home charm and endless resourcefulness. In these tales, John wanders the southern mountains, encountering hoodoo men and witchwomen, strange supernatural beasts, malevolent spirits, and even George Washington's ghost. Edited by horror legend Carl Edward Wagner, this volume contains the complete John the Balladeer stories in their original, unaltered form as they first appeared in magazines and anthologies between 1951 and 1987. Also featured is a foreword by Wellman's friend and literary executor David Drake and an introduction by Wagner. End quote. So there you have it, Manly Wade Wellman, a prolific multi-genre writer, multi-award winner. He died in 1986, but he lives on in the Manly Wade Wellman Award, and now a new complete collection of his John the Balladeer stories from Valancourt Books. I hope you enjoyed this quick tour of some of the highlights of Wellman's career, and I hope this was of interest to you. I look forward to joining you and talking about something completely different when we get together again to take another look back at genre history. Thank you. Ooh, Amy, what can I say? What can I say? A big Merry Christmas. Yes, big hug and a big Merry Christmas and a fantastic New Year, Amy. Love you loads, lass. So that is Starship Sofa, was it 722? Yes, I had to look back there. Put to bed. Fantastic. Until next time, I would just like to say good night from me. Thank you for listening. So I'm waiting on your call at home with nowhere to go. Can you?
signal getting through. Turn on your radio. I want to talk to you. I want to talk to you. Myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.